From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To move the needle on COVID vaccinations, Governor Jared Polis says doctors' offices must play a bigger role in patients' decision-making. The most important discussion that they can have is not with the FDA, not with me, not even with their employer. It's with their personal, trusted doctor. Meanwhile, Polis is pleased with the FDA's stance on boosters after excoriating two government scientists last week. We'll also talk about ozone pollution and climate change. Later, how music can open a conversation about emotions. Music can set the stage for a spooky story or make us feel uneasy or give us a way to talk about our deepest fears. We meet the co-creators of CPR's new music appreciation podcast, Music Blocks. If you don't want to deal with selling or fixing your car, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The donation process is safe and simple. You get rid of your unwanted vehicle, and you financially support CPR's news and music services. Vehicle donation revenue is an important source of funding for CPR. Find out how to donate your car on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID-19 boosters got a boost themselves Monday with President Biden getting his in front of cameras. He's 78 and qualifies under federal guidance. It's an experience Governor Jared Polis wants all vaccinated Coloradans to have soon. Minus the cameras, perhaps. I spoke with the governor Monday afternoon for our regular interview. Governor, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure, Ryan. You had some very strong words recently about the need for COVID-19 booster shots. You were critical of an FDA advisory committee decision last week to recommend boosters only for people age 65 and up or people younger than that with underlying medical conditions. I'll say that's since been expanded to include boosters for frontline workers, so people in healthcare, teachers, grocery store employees. Does that shift go far enough? Yes, right. I'm actually very happy with what Dr. Walensky did, really taking in all of the data information. She is the CDC director and giving the final word that expanded eligibility for boosters. This is specifically, Ryan, the booster for those who had the Pfizer shot six months or more ago. And in our state, everybody who falls in that category, essentially everybody who got the Pfizer shot six months ago or more, is now eligible for a booster. Why is that? It's because the only people getting it six months ago were either 65 and up or frontline workers, teachers, and others. So I wanted to make sure that everybody would be eligible for the booster after six months. The data shows that there is waning protection, particularly with Pfizer uh, vaccinations after a period of about five or six months. It also shows a terrific immune response in terms of antibodies from the booster, and then real-life data from Israel that shows significantly decreased disease incidence from the Pfizer booster. For those who got Moderna or Johnson & Johnson, a booster is available only if you attest to having a weakened immune system, which you can do very simply on a checkoff form. We also expect that the Moderna booster data, along with the J&J booster data, will be formally submitted to FDA and CDC shortly. When would you like to see boosters for the general population? Well, I think what the data is showing is that everybody benefits after six months. And, you know, there's no magic to six months. It could be five. It could be seven. 
but obviously the longer you, you wait, the more you put yourself at risk. And there's not any data that shows there's any benefit to getting it a month or two after your first two. So uh, you need some period of time to go by. And I think five, six, seven months seems to be about when immunity starts to wane and when a booster really gives you well north of 90, 95% protection. Moderna seems to be holding up a little bit better in terms of the drop-off. There's a slight drop-off in protection rates, but it's holding up a little better than Pfizer. But we hope that the action will be similar, and that will also be essentially anybody who had it six months or more before. You did say of those FDA scientists who questioned boosters that they would have blood on their hands. Is saying something like that following the science? Yes, they're gone, thankfully. Those two resigned in disgrace. Um, here's the issue, Ryan. I'm not um, sure. I'm not sure they resigned you, in, in disgrace. They resigned over a disagreement with the Biden administration that instead of boosting Americans, you might feed the rest of the world with vaccines exactly, who are lagging behind. Exactly, and that's not their job. That's why it was disgrace. It's a legitimate policy discussion to say, oh, how many should we try to give to other people in the world? And I'm all for that. And Biden's getting 500 million doses for others. But the science on the benefit to Americans is clear that the booster boosts that. So they're out of their lane at the FDA in trying to look at global health. Doesn't mean Biden shouldn't look at global health. Doesn't mean that I shouldn't care about global health. But that's not the FDA's role. And the reason that they left in disgrace is they were trying to look at a global health issue, a legitimate one, but one that wasn't their job. Their job is protecting Americans. The booster protects Americans. Private doctors can administer the vaccine in their offices. Do you think enough of them are doing so? No, uh, and more need to, because what we find is that among, we're at about 76% of eligible Coloradans who've gotten at least their first vaccine. So for that 24% that just hasn't yet, there's probably 10 or 15 that just aren't going to get it, doesn't matter, refuse. So that means you still have around 10 or 15% that are on the fence, persuadable, delaying it. And the most important discussion that they can have is not with the FDA, not with me, not even with their employer. It's with their personal trusted doctor. And that's why we have aggressively worked to partner with primary care providers, family doctors, even giving them grants, sixty, dollars $100,000 to help make sure that they have the ability, without it costing them money, because those are small businesses too, they then have the ability to go out and do the outreach to their patients, incorporate this into their wellness checks, and offer the vaccine with that intimate relationship that the trusted family physician has with families and individuals who may not have been vaccinated yet. And we're talking about a game of inches, not yards here, right? We're at 76%. We'd love to get to 85 or 90. We know we're not going to be to 95 or 98. So every new person counts. Every discussion between a doctor and a patient matters. And we're talking about a percent here, a percent there. I'd like to talk about masks. There have been calls for you to mandate masks in schools. You have said previously here on this program and elsewhere that you'll leave that to local decision makers. But here's one way that's playing out, Governor. When Tri-County Health mandated masks in schools, one of its member counties, Douglas County, voted to leave the health department and create its own. Do you see that as an intended effect of your policy that locals make a decision like that? Or is it counterproductive what's happening with Douglas County? Well, of course, uh, Ryan, it's up to Douglas County if they want to remain in Tri-County Health. This is not a new discussion. I believe they voted to withdraw a year ago as well. So, I mean, there's been some tension there. I don't happen to live in Douglas, Arapahoe, or Adams, but those who do 
get a say in that. And there's no right, there's no wrong. I mean, it's, there's some economies of scale by having three large counties together. But if Douglas County values go in a different direction, it's certainly their prerogative to do it. I'm proud of the track record of safety we have in Colorado. We have the sixth lowest incidence of COVID-19 right now across all 50 states. New state data clearly show that wearing a mask and for those who qualify getting vaccinated lower the risk of kids getting and potentially spreading the virus. Uh, Again, you've said you want to leave that to local control. But now that this state data are in, why not move forward with a statewide rule that says the science points to the effectiveness of masks? Many kids are unvaccinated. They should have masks, period. There are parents longing for something like that. What do you tell them? Well, I think everything you just said is our viewpoint. Uh, Masks work. They reduce transmission. Kids should use them, whether they're required in your district or not. Uh, It turns out about 80% of our schools do require masks in our state of Colorado. And it also turns out that the incidence of spread in schools that don't require masks is about a third to 50% higher. So, you know, that's an important data point, too. It's not exponentially higher. It's not 10 times higher it's a third to 50 percent higher. And so that is a valid data point in discussions about how districts and what policy districts can use to encourage mask wearing. It is not a data point that moves you on policy, though, to be clear. Well, our policy has been clear and consistent. It's followed the science and it's the same as the CDC. Um, CDC doesn't require it for schools. We don't require it for schools. CDC says it prevents spread in schools. We say it prevents spread in schools. CDC says you should wear a mask. And that's what we that's what I say. My two kids wear a mask every day. Um, my son more than my daughter. And part of that is because he likes wearing a mask and being safe. Our daughter, you know, more of the kind where you have to remind her to do it. But, you know, as a parent, um, I want my kids wearing a mask when they're around others because they're not vaccinated yet. They're nine and seven. Uh, I hope that that will be uh, approved soon. As my understanding, Pfizer will be submitting that data in the next few days to the FDA to protect our six to 11 year olds. And I will also hold the FDA's feet to the fire to hold the appropriate meetings and make their assessment very quickly on that because there's a lot of parents that are very eager to get their kids protected. And if the vaccine is safe and effective for kids as we expect it to be, and the data bears that out, uh, they shouldn't sit on that. They should act very quickly to hopefully approve that for uh, those who have kids in the 6 to 11 range. A state senator on the legislature's audit committee says that when it comes to COVID-19 tests, your administration has, quote, wasted millions of taxpayer dollars and, more critically, endangered the health and safety of Colorado's most vulnerable populations. In requesting an audit, one example Republican Rob Woodward of Loveland points to is that the state, using his words here, ultimately paid a new and unproven company called Curative $89 million that resulted in a failed testing program in nursing homes. Uh, Indeed, this is a test that Colorado no longer uses. What's your response to his concern there? Well, look, once a quarter, my administration submits hundreds of pages to the legislature detailing the every funds that we spent on the COVID response. Um, The reality is Colorado's lost far fewer people to COVID than most other states. We are in the lowest 10 states for COVID deaths per capita, and we currently have the sixth lowest COVID rate in the country. And so those results really speak for themselves. Coloradans are doing their part. They're stepping up uh, during a challenging year. We're getting vaccinated at at higher rates. Uh, We use a variety of vendors in our nursing homes. In fact, the Colorado data shows that Curative was really just as effective as other labs that we used. 
And there's still many states that use them. Washington, Oregon, California, Wyoming, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Georgia, Mississippi, and Washington, D.C., and many other private sector businesses and municipalities all still use this vendor uh, that we canceled just because uh, we couldn't be sure that their performance would be the same as others. But our data shows, in fact, over the period in question, that their performance was comparable to other contractors for testing. They were producing false results, though. And in the chaos of early pandemic nursing homes, that's a problem. So was there some intervention that your administration ought to have engaged in earlier when it came to these tests? Well, look, we worked very creatively to get testing early in. It's one of the reasons that Colorado has such a great success story. And in fact, we have uh, we're in the bottom 10 states for death rate per capita is because we embrace testing early. We worked with every vendor to scale up to the ability they could. I hope you remember, Ryan, those days where testing was scarce. We had to scrounge around. We imported tests from South Korea, working with Senator Gardner to get them here. We worked with a variety of vendors, uh, none of whom alone would be able to offer the scale that we needed for our entire state. But I think in, because of embracing testing, we were able to have one of the lower uh, mortality rates. As with every testing vendor, CDPHE had a robust vetting process and worked with a variety of vendors. And of course, some vendors performed better than others. Um, they decided not to continue working with Curative. Many other states are still working with Curative. You, you paint a rather rosy picture of COVID deaths and rates in Colorado compared to other states. But at one point, it was some of the worst in nursing homes in the country in Colorado for deaths. So I, I want to acknowledge that chapter in Colorado's pandemic history. Well, first, every death is a tragedy for the kid, the aunt, the uncle, the cousin, the friend, somebody else who's not coming home. No death should be an opportunity for uh, a political party to score cheap political points off the tragedy. What we have in Colorado is just over seven, about 7,500 people have died from the virus. Each one of those is a tragedy. In the context of that, we are in the bottom 10 states for per capita death rates. I'm proud of that. We're currently sixth lowest in COVID cases. Now, it's fair to say, Ryan, at the same time, our whole country is scared poorly. Uh, and even being one of the best performing states in Colorado, our entire nation has a higher death rate per capita than many other countries across the world because they manage it better as a nation. I feel that we did the best we could as a state. I feel our results measure up. It doesn't diminish from the immense tragedy of every loss that we experience from this virus, as well as the losses ahead that are unnecessary at this point and people can prevent simply by getting vaccinated. To climate change and air quality, we got a lot of questions about this on Twitter, second perhaps only to school masking. Um, a lot of concern about ground-level ozone, which can cause coughing, shortness of breath, it can worsen asthma and bronchitis. And there were more ozone alerts on the front range this summer than at any time since the state began keeping records a decade ago. Car emissions are a major ingredient. So this question from Twitter user LMW of Boulder. Your administration talks about air quality when we get smoke from further west. But what about the larger issue that is within our control, ozone? Will he put in place policies that reduce driving and oil and gas emissions, particularly on bad air days? Well, first of all, the absolutely horrific air quality that we experienced for several weeks this summer 
was because of fires in California. Predominantly that's, that, it, that, is patent, in California. that is patently not true, Governor. We know that the primary it's absolutely source, true. the primary it's source absolutely for, true. Uh, for my science, ozone. Look, Ryan, Ryan, it's absolutely true. And what you said is false. It is the air quality from the Dixie fire that caused the problems. If you're talking about ground ozone, that's a totally different issue. I'm talking about the air quality that I heard about from constituents across the state, almost entirely the Dixie fires, not Colorado, not our cars. Ground ozone is different. That's not the air quality issue that I hear about. Oh, but certainly you must you must admit, though, that ozone and air quality are related. Ozone is a component of air quality, but it's not one that I heard about from anybody. What I heard about is I can't breathe because there's ashes in the air. I can't even see 100 yards from my home. I'm coughing and I'm sick. And I encourage people to go out and get COVID tests because those are some of the same symptoms that COVID has. And last summer, that was a result of some of the fires in Colorado, the three largest fires in the history of our state, directly related to climate change, which is why my administration has essentially declared a climate emergency around taking urgent actions to reduce our carbon emissions across every sector and achieve 100% renewable energy by 2040. We've already locked in place 80% renewable energy by 2030. This is a crisis that we're directly seeing in the impact of fires, the mudslides in Glenwood Canyon this summer. We have two heavily dependent climate industries in our state, agriculture, tourism and recreation, including skiing, that are directly on the vanguard of being impacted by the climate crisis. It's true, perhaps, that I can't substantiate what people were complaining to you about, so I don't confess to do that. But I do know that the state risks becoming a severe violator when it comes to ozone under the EPA. That could increase federal regulation. As you've said, ozone is a component of air quality. I I ask you then, separate from the fires, is this summer's bad air a reflection that you are moving too slowly, Governor? Well, first of all, we're moving as fast as we can on climate. That's one of the reasons I ran for office. This is an emergency that calls for emergency-level response. When I got elected, we convened a climate cabinet, which is everything the Department of Transportation, Natural Resources. The cabinet meets regularly to take the steps that we can as a state to act. Colorado had bad air quality as a result of the wildfires. And guess what? We weren't alone. Uh, There were many other cities across the American West that had the worst air quality in the nation at different times, Bend, Oregon, Salt Lake City, Reno, Boise, small cities and large cities. Um, And this was across rural Colorado and urban Colorado. Uh, And it is a climate-related crisis. I think some of the advocates might be talking about it the wrong way. What they should be saying, uh, you know, I I will be an advocate again once I'm done being governor, and I was a climate advocate before I, I was governor, is look at this. Because of a drier, longer summer and hotter conditions, we are having record forest fires And that's yet another reason that we need to take action now on climate. With a hotter, drier climate, there is an extreme risk of fire, which not only destroys property, but it's also fair to talk about the significant impact in air quality from large-scale fires. Overall, transportation is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And your goal is to reduce emissions in that sector, the transportation sector, 40 percent by 2030. But the state's energy director said last week that existing rules will only get the state about two-thirds of the way there, and the rest is based on policies either that don't yet exist or that depend on federal money. So can the state reach its goal when it comes to emissions from cars and trucks? Well, there we go. You know, Ryan, you say the the glass is one-third empty. I say the glass is two-thirds full. How exciting it is 
that we are two-thirds of the way in place, locked in place towards reaching our 2030 goal of reducing transportation by 40%. That leaves eight more years to figure out the other one-third of filling that up. And of course, we're going to figure that out. A big part of that, frankly, is Senate Bill 260, which was the transportation funding, which is a forward-looking green approach to transportation. For the first time ever, we're funding zero-emission vehicle uh, support, charging stations, multimodal transportation, all locked in place. Of course, we also are taking uh, adopting policies to rapidly move to electric vehicles, along with the greener grid, which is a big part of achieving those 2030 goals and beyond. Before we go, one last topic. The state income tax, Governor Polis, I was interested in comments you made recently to a meeting in Steamboat Springs. You favor eliminating the state income tax. Why? Well, certainly with regard to any tax, I think every Coloradan feels the lower the better. At the same time, of course, we need to fund our schools, our roads, and other important public priorities. I think that there are better ways to do it than the income tax. The income tax is a tax on profit, a tax on success. I would rather find a way to tax things we don't like, like pollution. We talked about air quality. Uh, What a great way to reduce ozone if instead of taxing income, you tax some of the precursors or the uh, types of activities that form ozone in your state that are ground level. So uh, look forward to exploring those opportunities to reduce and or eliminate the income tax. Uh, to help make Colorado more successful. When you say reduce, would you do that across the board or would you say reduce it for poorer folks and tax wealthier folks at a higher rate? What do you think? Well, first of all, you know, again, I think reducing it is more realistic than getting rid of it. I sort of said as a statement of principle, I would love not to have it. Of course, that's true. I don't view that as something that I'm pursuing, Ryan. I'm not saying get rid of it. What I do advocate for is reducing it. When I came into office, the income tax rate was 4.63%. It is now on a permanent basis, 4.55%. And for next year, we'll be 4.5%. So we're, we're knocking it down. At the same time, we're making sure it doesn't cost, uh, uh, take one dime out of our public schools or any other priority. Uh, we're finding new ways to invest at record levels in public education, preschool, kindergarten, healthcare, and now roads with our new transportation infrastructure package, which invests $5 billion in green infrastructure and traditional infrastructure over the next decade. If you were to tax pollution, who who would you tax? Give me an example of that uh, on the ground where the ozone is. Well, look, I mean, we're not going to, you and I, in the course of a conversation, are not going to develop a new tax system to replace the income tax. But I think there's a lot of good ideas out there that have been explored. It's something that United States Congress and Senator Hickenlooper have been looking at supporting. Uh, It's something that I think it's high time for at the state level to have that conversation. And even if it's not going to abolish the income tax, maybe instead of 4.5, we can knock it down to three and a half or three or two and a half. Um, On a revenue neutral basis, I want to understand what people when what people, your listeners understand when I say that is I'm not talking about anything that would cost our schools or roads or healthcare one dime. Uh, in fact, there could be opportunities to invest even more in our schools uh, through reducing the income tax. Well, Governor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Democratic Governor Jared Polis and Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with music's ability to pry loose our emotions. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Hello. Robots moved from science fiction to reality a few decades ago, and now they're an ever-increasing presence in the workplace. 
how does that shape the economy? See Marketplace's David Brancaccio discuss automation in the workplace live with me, Avery Lill of Colorado Matters, October 7th at the closing keynote session of Denver Startup Week, focusing on everything entrepreneurial in Denver. Events are in person and online October 4th to 8th. Schedule at denverstartupweek.org. Whenever I hear the song Skylark, especially Aretha Franklin's version, well, I just get weak in the knees. Skylark! Oh, I don't know if you can find these things. Oh, but my heart, my heart is riding on This song fills me with longing and hope and nostalgia. Nothing connects us to our emotions quite like music. It's a power a new CPR podcast harnesses. Each episode of Music Blocks is about five minutes long. Teachers can use it in classrooms, and people of all ages can listen on their own. As CPR's Luis Antonio Perez puts it in the trailer, This isn't your parents' music appreciation podcast. It's current multicultural, and diverse. Perez hosts and produces Music Blocks with Rebecca Romberg. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. It's nice to actually be in the studio with some colleagues. <laughs> and Professor Carla Aguilar is the education advisor for Music Blocks. She directs music education at Metropolitan State University in Denver. Hello. Hello. Hi, Ryan. Hi, everyone. Hey. Uh, professor, only about half of high schoolers in Colorado take any art classes, although most schools offer those classes. When it comes to music education, what are some of the barriers for students, first off? Well, I think some of the barriers are interest, I'll be honest. I think that there's some in, some students are interested in um, ensemble music like band, choir, and orchestra, and we're so happy that they have the opportunity to participate. But there's other kinds of um, opportunities to engage with music that they want, like listening or writing or creating. And I think that if we had opportunities to have more of that happening in, in high schools, that there might be more interest in participating and learning about music from these different perspectives. Thank you for talking about listening, because I'm, <laughs> I'm someone who so identifies with that. I really didn't enjoy playing instruments, despite the fact that my mother uh, forced me to play piano and tried to get me to play trumpet. But I love to listen to music, and it seemed like the only offering was ever to play it. Uh, um, would you reflect on that? Yes, I think that is a gap in our opportunity to engage with lots of different kinds of students that we tend to focus more on the performance aspects as like what counts as music education when exactly what you just said, Ryan, like there are so many students who are interested in listening to music and understanding what they're listening to in lots of different ways and creating music and composing music. And so I think there are some opportunities that we have as music educators, music teachers, music consumers to sort of start thinking about what we can do to do to engage in music in those different ways. Enter Music Blocks, this new podcast from Colorado Public Radio. And how do you think, Professor, a podcast could help create that kind of relationship, especially using emotion? Sure. I think we 
when we, t- when we started conceptualizing this, um, <clears throat> just thinking about ways for teachers to bring in some listening for a, f- a short amount of time during a class, whether that's during a music appreciation class or another academic class, like a social studies class or an English class, or um, another ensemble class, having the students listen to music and talk about those particular things during the classes. I think that emotions um, with ideas around social and emotional learning have really surfaced during the pandemic and getting students and teachers opportunities to share and talk about how music has supported them through the COVID crisis, as well as like things that they're thinking about just in general in their life. I think this having an opportunity for listening has really, can really help them. Yeah. Gosh, music has been so instrumental, uh, pardon the pun for me in the <laughs> pandemic and just like navigating it. Luis, how do you envision people listening to music blocks outside the classroom? Well, the way that we made it, we made sure that it was really small and short so it could fit into obviously a classroom. But uh, even anecdotally, people are already telling us that they're listening to it with their kids on the way to work because they're just five minutes long so it, like, it fits into whatever you're already doing with your kids teenagers uh, or high school age kids but folks are telling us that even their like younger grade school kids are listening to it uh, it sounds like an opportunity for some bonding too I think sure. it's easy to bond over music each episode focuses on a different emotion happiness anger fear Rebecca how did you choose the emotions So this is another place where Carla was very helpful. So thank you, Carla. Um, In developing the show, we were talking to a lot of different educators and Carla had her own sort of like focus group of people that um, are involved in music education. And they suggested the feelings wheel, uh, which is seven core emotions at the center of it. Uh, So those are happiness, sadness, anger, disgust, bad which is my personal favorite because it's so vague. Um, let's see. Uh, what are the other ones I'm missing? Oh, Louise? you were so close to convincing me so you'd close. memorize the, oh. the feelings wheel. I know. Gosh. Um, I love disgust because I wouldn't think to place it on the wheel. Disgust. Yes. Yeah. Well, and actually, um, one of the other pieces of media that we thought a lot about was Inside Out, the Pixar film, uh, because a lot of the emotions that you see the characters in that film are are based off of the feelings wheel. Um, So there's seven core emotions. I forgot two of them. Um, But we also (laughs) decided um, in creating the show that a lot of those emotions are actually sort of negative, Um, you know, like disgust, anger, sad. Um, And so we felt like we were missing this this core of emotion that was positive. And so we added good to the list. Well, this is the perfect segue. Thank you for providing it. We're going to dive into an episode that is titled Feeling Really Good. This is Music Blocks, a podcast about the building blocks that make up your favorite sounds, whatever you love to listen to. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. Getting a fresh start and feeling good about it is a powerful feeling. It can fill you with optimism. It's a new life for me. American singer Nina Simone knew how to express this. And I'm feeling good. In the song Feeling Good, she compares that feeling of rejuvenation to the vibrancy of nature itself. You know how I feel. River running free. How do musicians capture the sound of feeling really good? That's what this episode of Music Blocks is all about. Get ready for inspiring words, confident-sounding grooves, 
and triumphant melodies. And I'm feeling good. It pays to have confidence, even if you're just starting out. In the song Old Town Road, Lil Nas X did that with a mix of hip hop and country music sounds. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. He says the song is about setting out to accomplish something big and sticking to your goals. When he says, can't nobody tell me nothing, it's about believing in himself. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Can't tell me nothing. And that confidence paid off. This song became a huge success. Feeling confident is often about being comfortable in your own skin. Let's go, girls. Country singer Shania Twain wrote an anthem about that called Man, I Feel Like a Woman. I'm going out tonight. I'm feeling all right. The vocal going melody is a big part of what makes this song exciting. It starts at a lower register during the verse, moves up to higher notes as the chorus approaches, and climbs into a higher range in the chorus almost like an airplane taking flight. Feeling good often means having a sense of power. This is a Native American flute playing a victory song. The Comanche Nation lives on the southern Great Plains of the United States, and they've used the version of this music to celebrate a successful battle. You can hear how the vibrations and the quick pauses add to the thrill of the music. Having enough confidence to think you'll get past people who get in your way, that takes grit and optimism. Jimmy Cliff, a Jamaican reggae singer, wrote about this in his song, The Harder They Come. A song with lyrics like that might sound intense or aggressive. But the cool thing about The Harder They Come is it sounds totally relaxed. Like he's not even going to break a sweat worrying about what's coming at him. He feels good about his odds. good helps you to shake off the challenges that might come your way, to keep pushing forward. Janelle Monae sings about this in her song Tightrope. It's about moving forward whatever they say about you. But it's not just the singing and the words. The swagger in this song comes from the drums, the bass, and the horn section. The groove itself exudes confidence. And that brings up an important point. Great musicians can make vibrant music without any lyrics at all. British composer Gustav Holst did this in his orchestral piece, The Planets. This is the section about the planet Jupiter. 
In mythology, the Roman god Jupiter was associated with power and liveliness. The woodwinds sound nimble, the brass and the cymbals sound bold, and the melody gives the music an air of triumph. It feels good to be Jupiter. How are you feeling after that? Really good? Okay, great, because that means this episode of Music Blocks has done its job. Now I've got a favor to ask. Think of one sound or phrase that makes you feel good, and imagine how you'd use that sound or phrase in a song. Would you write inspiring lyrics, make a melody that sounded like victory, or a groove that sounded confident? If you need some ideas, check out our Feeling Good playlist at musicblockspodcast.org. Or, if you feel like creating a song or playlist about feeling good, give it a try. And when you're done, share it with us. Email hello at musicblockspodcast.org. For Music Blocks and Colorado Public Radio, I'm Luis Antonio Perez. And you hear there the interactive nature of this new podcast. Luis joins us along with co-host and co-producer Rebecca Romberg, plus education advisor Carla Aguilar of MSU Denver. She holds a doctorate in music education. And this episode just sent me back to a, a memory of riding in my mom's car listening to I'm So Excited by the Pointer Sisters. Mm. Just to reflect back on the bonding that we were talking about earlier, Luis. I'm curious how you answer your own question. Is there a sound or phrase that makes you feel good that you might build music Mm. or a playlist around? What a good question. Um, I'll say that... um, so I come from, um, I call myself very much a hip-hop generation person growing up in the 90s, golden era of hip-hop. And uh, I really like the jazzy kind of hip-hop sounds, like Pete Rock and Jay Dilla. So anytime I even hear like the drum riff, just I'm already grooving. I'm already into it. So that, I, I would say that's like my go-to sound for feeling good. Do you beatbox in this podcast? Or we, we, was this an exclusive <laughs> no, no. on Colorado Exclusive. Matters? Just this is an exclusive. Ryan. How exciting. <laughs> I, I love the range of listening. I mean, in that episode, Lil Nas X, Shania Twain, Gustav Holst, in just like a few minutes span, how the heck, Rebecca, did your team choose the music? I would be overwhelmed by the choices. Yeah, it's it's insane how much music there is in the world, <laughs> right? And that was something that we wanted to make sure to highlight um a lot in this process was the diversity of music. And that was something that we heard from Carla and from other educators that this can't just be one style, one genre, one culture. And so we didn't want it to fall to just one person. And we ended up creating an Excel spreadsheet. Okay. And <laughs> we just, it was a lot of um, group brainstorming. So our team, as well as we got some help from uh, Monica Vischer and the folks at CPR Classical, the folks over at Indy 1023. So we collaborated with our Colorado Public Radio family and came up with uh, cues that we felt like would create a diverse listening experience and really explain the diversity of the feelings that we're talking about in the episodes. Yeah, I mean, I learned so much just in those f- quick few minutes, in part because of the choices you made about music. And and Professor, I'm interested, uh, beyond the podcast, how important is music selection in music education? 
Oh, it's really important. I think um, tapping into relevance for students so that they feel like they're being heard and understood. I think there's like this validating element to that. Mm. And then um, along with that, I think taking them to other places, like other kind of cultural music that we might've listened to or to into the classical realm. But I think um, that might have really supported them like being available to listen. Okay, you acknowledge music that I connect with, that I find relevant and validating, and I'll listen to some other choices. Um, along with that. So I think that's really important to have that range of diverse um, genres to, to listen to. In a way, you've got to walk them in the door with something that they connect with. And then yes. and then you surprise them with all of the things they don't perhaps know yet or aren't exposed to. Yes. Uh-huh. Was there a, a eureka moment for you, something you learned, Luis, in putting this podcast together? About music or music education or your own emotions? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think all of us, I mean, the global all of us, you, me, Rebecca, everyone listening, we're all, we all love music. And um, this project sort of helped me reconnect with that, Mm. you know, just understanding that, you know, sure, maybe your mom forces you to learn piano and trumpet or, or not, but we, we listen to music our entire lives, you know, and it, 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 uh, it plays a part in the way that we feel, obviously. And uh, it helped me reconnect with that, just hearing all the different genres of music, thinking about them in the context of the emotions that we're feeling. And even within our team, like Rebecca was saying, where, you know, we're like, oh, this is too much of a bummer. We have too many bummer episodes. We need one more feeling good episode. Mm-hmm. We're just living life, listening to music and just going through it. It's a good gig if you can get it. (laughs) Rebecca, did you have an aha moment putting this broadcast together? I think similarly, it changed the way that I listened to music in the sense that, you know, driving from here or there, listening to the radio, I started really pinpointing, like, what emotion is this making me feel? It did help me get back in touch with my feelings Hmm. in a really nice way. And I think mm-hmm. the the fear episode includes Will You Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles. Will and you still love me tomorrow? Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Y'all are getting like a performance in this episode of Colorado Matters. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, listening to that song, I was like, oh, this is a love song. <laughs> and then I realized like that song is about fear. And that needs to get in that episode. Oh, wow. So it's been a nice way for, I, I hope it is for listeners. It's definitely been for me to get back in touch with with my feelings. That's so interesting. I've heard that song for years and never thought of that. Right. It's fear of loss. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor, I'll, I'll ask you the same question before we go. An aha moment for someone who's been doing this for decades. I was really excited about the the diversity of music and just learning from uh, my colleagues that I worked on the project with about different kinds of musical styles and genres that they are connected with and know about. Um, I, I listen to a lot of music as part of my job and then engage with a lot of musical practice, but I also tend to like fall into a little pigeonhole sometimes. And mm. so having an opportunity just to hear from different genres, different cultures um, from my from my colleagues was was really interesting and really fun for me as part of the process. Well, give me an example of a genre that you were exposed to. Um, well, I mean, I'm familiar with K-pop, for example, and but I, it's not something that I, I listen to a lot. And so I thought like some of the episodes we bring in uh, K-pop or some an, an excerpt like that. And so that was interesting to me to like, oh, this is particularly interesting to hear this or hear what they're saying or thinking about as the artists are sharing their music and musical ideas. K-pop, South Korean popular music. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, this has been a blast, and thank you so much for sharing the music and your feelings, your emotions with us. Thanks, Thank Ryan. you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. You heard from Rebecca Romberg and Luis Antonio Perez, hosts and producers of Music Blocks. It's a new music appreciation podcast from CPR's Audio Innovation Studio. It's for all ages. And Carla Aguilar is the education advisor. She's director of music education at Metropolitan State University in Denver. It's chili harvest time in Pueblo, a crop the region is famous for. CPR's Benta Berkland introduces us to a family that's been farming for generations. Not far from downtown Pueblo, Cottonwood trees line the expansive rolling hills. Outdoor farm stands dot the rural landscape. Musso Farm sits off a dirt road. And that's where I met Rocky Musso, who showed off some of the harvest. What we're looking at here is a bushel. It's about 22 to 25 pounds. And uh, what everybody will do with that is either take it home and roast it themselves, or we, we roast it here for them so they can put it in their freezers and save it for the wintertime. Musso and his father run the farm. On the busiest days, Musso says they have about a dozen chili roasters fired up, and under the outdoor awning, the temperature reaches as high as 120 degrees. For us here, we can get a bushel done in about five minutes. To demonstrate, he pours the chilies into the roaster. It's going to get really loud, actually. When they're ready, Musso uses a hose to spray the chilies with water to clean off their charred skins. Our chili is our main crop. We got into the chili business, maybe around 30 varieties of chili. The Musos don't just roast all those chilies. They have a separate area with shelves and shelves of other products. I went into the chili room and it just, it was amazing how many things chili can go into from honey to pasta. Yeah, uh, the chili room is amazing. If, if you, you name it, we got it with chili in there. The farms in Pueblo are a community gathering spot. Even on a weekday, the parking lot is full of cars. Old friends and neighbors and regular customers mingle with people traveling to the area. I met Erica Springer browsing with her two-year-old daughter, Betty. Is that a, what is that, a chili? Chili. Hmm. Is it a chili a plastic squishy, toy? A squishy, like a stress ball. A squish. Springer says shopping at the local markets has become part of her weekly routine. She moved to Pueblo about a decade ago, and this is one of the many things she says she loves about living here. And I've lived Louisiana, Texas, California, Pennsylvania, all over the country, and here... They have, like, the farms, the culture, like, it's just so open and inviting. Like, I never knew what a slopper was until I moved here, and then I was like, what is that? And then they're like, or green chili. I mean, in California, it's salsa verde or chili verde, but it's not the same thing. For the uninitiated, the slopper is a Pueblo invention. It's an open-faced cheeseburger covered with green chili. 1885. And 67 cents. Selling produce and farming has never been an easy way to make a living. Rocky Musso's grandfather, Carl, learned that from his own father. My grandfather and my oldest uncle came from Italy. Then my dad was the first born in the United States. And my dad was born on this place in 1903. And then he farmed it till he lost a hand 
Musso says that happened when his dad was dumping beets out of a truck. After the accident, Carl took over the farm. But he says his dad wasn't happy about it. He had a fit because he said <laughs> farming ain't no good for a good life. It's a good life, but too hard a life, too hard a life. And the outdoor market is basically in his backyard. So he's there every day, seated in his walker. Musso says there's nowhere else he wants to be. I'm like a big old cottonwood tree. I got roots down to water. It ain't going to move me. (laughs) It's a sense of belonging his grandson, Rocky, understands. You look out and you see all all the fields and all the crops growing in there and know that you you had a big hand in doing that and... The enjoyment on people's faces when they're eating your produce, it, it really makes for a satisfying life. At the Musso Farms east of Pueblo, I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today. Our team is... Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.